Welcome to Bonehead, and I'm so excited because I've wanted you on here for a while, Mr. Miller. We're re we are welcoming director Stephen C. Miller. How are you today? Good, guys. Thanks for having me. This will be fun. It is hopefully going to be fun. Now, we're really laid back, and we're going to make a lot of jokes as we go. Not at your expense. It's just how we do with <laughs> jokes as we go along. And what I, after following you several years on social media, I, I want people to know that you're just a big geek. Like, every, like this one of the things that we bring out when we interview a lot of people. You're just a totally. nerd, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've always been a real movie nerd, among, among other things. Um, but, you know, geek is a good point. Uh, you know, in high school, for some reason, when I went to high school, it was just not cool to be the geek or the nerd. Like, now it seems like if you're a geek and a nerd, you're, like, on the cool path. Well, we're uh, probably but, on the you know, same age, so I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's also, I think it was also just not cool to skate. And so I also, so I was like a double sword. I skated and I was a movie nerd, probably just like girl repellent, you know. So, um, but, it, you know, it's just funny how times have definitely changed. Skating is like the ultimate now. I know. So, I, actually, that's a great starting point. And I hate to be like James Lipton, but let's start at the beginning, you know. Sure. You, you grew up in Georgia, but you went to full sail. So, I'm yeah. I'm curious to know, growing up, what was what was that experience? Where at in Georgia? It was it more rural? Was it more in the city? Well, I was born in Georgia in Decatur, and then my parents moved around a lot. Uh, so we didn't really stay in Georgia. We were in Georgia. We were all over the East Coast. We went to Tennessee, uh, and then we sort of just landed in Jacksonville, Florida, um, around my uh, sixth or seventh grade year. And then so we we were there until I graduated high school. But I went to three different high schools in that in that time just because my dad moved around a lot and we were constantly going um but yeah so it was definitely definitely suburban um i wasn't really in the city it was definitely suburbia uh so it was me and i had three brothers and a sister uh and i'm the oldest and all of my brothers and sisters were all 18 months apart exactly uh so it's 18 months to my brother 18 months to him 18 months <laughs> and so it's like when we were out it was like a group you know we were pretty close in age all of us so when we hung out it was pretty much a group of kids. And so they were sort of my first test subjects for anything, whether it was skating or jumping off roofs, doing wrestling moves, or, you know, like they were my guinea pigs and they're lucky they're alive. But, you know, that's really where I started honing in on what I loved and what I enjoyed, whether it was, you know, actually, I mean, I remember us like digging around in the, in the kitchen, grabbing anything we could to make blood. Uh, so I could try to figure out how to make it look like my brother had sliced his arm, you know, we're trying to freak my mom out. So I don't know, we started really early on uh, just, you know, getting to know what we were, in, you know, what we were capable of. So what, what, what was the bug that bit you? You know, most of us have a movie, for example, you've got Jaws and Star Wars. I'm, yeah. Both of those are huge influences. Of course, in the, I don't have a job, my Jaws poster. Well, I actually don't have a Jaws poster here. But most, those are huge influences on us as well. But what was the bug that bit you? And you're like, I want to be a director. I, I think the bug that bit me, honestly, was Evil Dead 2. Um, I, <laughs> oh. I, I, was too, I was way too young to be watching it. <clears throat> you know, I, I, I remember specifically I was about seven or eight, and I had snuck over to my friend's house. And that's the only way I was going to watch any kind of a rated R movie. It's always at your friend's house, right? I mean, like, Absolutely. and so I, it's always their house or their basement or whatever it was. And so I snuck over, we were hanging out, and, and he had, his dad had just watched it and left it in the VCR. And I remember we just pressed play. And I think we were like, I don't, I, we didn't move because we were just so stunned at what this, what were we watching, <laughs> you know? And uh, I remember just being like, this is bananas. I've never seen anything like this. It was all 
fluff until that, right? You know, and so I think this was just a huge awakening moment for me of how does the camera move like that? Uh, how is everything so grand in my head? It was so grand and big and it was just in this cabin, but everything felt like it was moving uh, exponentially. And so that really hit me as, oh, I want to be able to move. I want the camera to do that, even though I really didn't have any idea like cameras or, or editing or anything like that. I just thought the way the picture moved, the way it flew around all over the place to me was insane and exciting. And my dad, I, I really, literally the next day, my dad had you know one of those VHS camcorders. Uh, and so I grabbed that and I, and I started to attach it to bungee cords and just kind of press record and throw it around the room and just see what it would do when I hooked it up to the fan. And it just would go in circles. And I remember me and my brother watching that and you could see us kind of going, whoa, whoa. And <laughs> I, we, we were immediately like, oh, we're making the evil dead. It's crazy, you know? So uh, I think that's, that's sort of where it hit me, this bug of like, that you, the camera could be more than just an object. Uh, it, it could be a life, you know, it could be part of the film. I love the fact that you were trying to figure out shaky cam and didn't even know what the hell that was. <laughs> yeah, right? was. As, a, yeah. as a huge Sam Raimi fan. So the difference between you and I, sir, other than you're a successful director, is that uh, I was the friend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was introducing yeah. those other yeah, you were, friends. You were to bringing groups. me over because, well, yeah, because I was, my dad was, was a Southern Baptist preacher, you know, and so for me to find any kind of, any kind of rated R artifacts, you know, or like anything like that, it was, it was not happening, right? Like, so my dad, my dad, when I, when I was early growing up was very strict. I mean, he's a completely different human now. Um, but when we were growing up, it was an insanely strict household. So for me to find that friend was like a gold mine. I was like, I'm hooking onto this dude, whatever he's doing, you know, I'm figuring it out. That's funny, Stephen. My uncle's a Baptist minister, so we have <laughs> a lot in common. But yeah, I was. I, a, I think it's sort of. It comes with the. Comes with the what? I'm sorry, you could. It comes out. with being part of the South for some reason. It it kind of does because we're in Kentucky. But yeah. I, I find all that fascinating. So Sam Raimi, John Carpenter were big influences on me. I'm yeah. You you just then you started finding Evil Dead. Then you then later came yeah, out in the Darkness it, and. Yeah, it was it was sort of a succession from that. It was like, wait, what else has this guy done? And at that point, uh, Army, it was just Evil Dead. So I went back and watched Evil Dead, the first one. Uh, and then it was, oh, wow. And then it was Halloween, uh, you know, and then it sort of just opened up the slasher genre. And then I was just sort of down that rabbit hole for a few years uh, until I discovered Peter Jackson. Uh, and, you know, and I'm watching Dead Alive and I'm just like, man, what is this? You know, the, you know, this, so it was sort of this world that just started to creep open for me. Um, but it, it what was funny is simultaneously as that world is opening up for me, you know, movies like Star Wars um, and Back to the Future were gigantic, you know, influences on me because I just felt this connection to the characters, right? And like, so it was different because horror for me, I, I never real, really felt connected other than to the camera, to the, the, the horror. I felt like this is great. But with Star Wars and Back to the Future and the Goonies, I, I was really feeling like, I wanted to be a part of that group <laughs> and I, that's the adventures I wanted to go on. Um, so, you know, it was really interesting with that, that those sort of things sort of meshed together all for me in the, the late eighties. And when it just became like, you know, this ultimate thing and, and going into the nineties and it was like, you know, it was an explosion of Indiana Jones and all this stuff for me was just like, you know, eye popping and then came Terminator two. And I was like, the ultimate action movie I'd ever seen in my life. It was the first rated R movie I saw in a theater. You know, I was just like, this is, you know, an overload. That's fantastic. I'm curious how that, how the, the Southern Baptist uh, influences, 
how you've went from probably Sunday school preacher's yeah. kid, which is a whole yeah. other, um, and I bet you don't get a lot of these questions. If you do, I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. But I'm trying to understand the psychology of it simply because I find that part fascinating of how yeah. do you deal with that, being raised with that and knowing, you know, I want to be a film director and not everyone in the family being pleased at that aspect. Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting that my family was really strict when I was growing up. And then they sort of went through this metamorphosis where they sort of started to back away from the church once I started getting to middle school, uh, which is very just doesn't happen for Southern Baptist ministers. Once they're in it, they're, they're in it. Right. And, and, in it to death, and my dad it, yeah. in it to death. Yeah. And, and my dad sort of had an awakening moment uh, when I was in middle school. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I was one of the kids that was very rambunctious uh, and very all over the place. And, and I was that kid that was trying to get the ch other church kids involved and in trying to do these weird horror experiments uh, and, and weird action things. And so the church had a big problem with me. Uh, and that I, they felt that I was a nuisance, basically. And I, and I remember the moment my dad came to me and said that he wasn't going to do this anymore because they were, they were literally blaming me for causing, I guess, a ruckus in the church. And so, you know, I, I think the psychology for me was is that I found out my dad cared more about me than anything else on the planet, right? And so, and, and, I, think, and I think that that made a huge impact on me and uh, in not, in not just filmmaking, but in life. Yep. Uh, and how I wanted to treat my future kids or, or how I wanted to even interact with my dad. Because up to that point, the interaction was very black and white. It was like, you're here, I'm down here, I get it. Uh, and then once my dad started to understand that this kid has something that we don't understand, but we want to try to facilitate a way for him to excel in it, uh, was, was really cool. Uh, and I think once he understood that I was very different um, and that my my outlook not necessarily uh, was was bad. It just was it was just a very different outlook. And I think once he understood that, he really tried to hone in on that for me uh, and, and try to, uh, you know, expand that for me and start to open up a little bit more of a world for me and say, hey, look, let's go get, what about, the, I think maybe this camera is a better camera for you to try to use. And like, you know, and, and a guy that's working at a church at the time we poor to try to get a camera for a kid is almost unheard of at that time where they're so expensive. Uh, and so then he started, crazy enough, he started, uh, he, he switched gears and moved to funeral homes and he started owning a funeral home. And so for me, that was like, well, it was like very uh, insane. You know, it started pushing me towards zombies and all this kind of stuff. And so like, you know, that's sort of the weird psychology of it is my dad went from church to being a funeral home director and uh, dealing with death all the time. And so that was just a whole nother world that was weird growing up. But it makes sense, though, coming from eyes as I do, a Southern Baptist background, that he would go into funerals. I mean, they deal so much with death and seeing the other. It makes complete sense that that would be the segue into the near, next career. Yeah, for sure. It, may, it, it was comfortable for him. He understood it. And, and I think he's, he's really good with people. Yeah. I think he could sort of see that in me. And he saw that, you know, the path I was on was, was good with people, but the different path. It felt you know, he said it to me several times. He, he saw me as someone that had a much bigger vision for what I wanted to do um, because I had always said, hey, look, I'm just going to go make movies. I, I don't know what else to say. I just, that's what I want to do. I want to make movies. Uh, I was saying that from a very young age. Um, no one knew how to do that in Jacksonville, Florida. No one understood how you do that in Jacksonville, Florida uh, because everyone was like, well, you got to know someone in, in Hollywood. How are you going to just make movies? I don't know if that happens, you know, and 
and, and to my parents' credit, their, their reaction was never that. Their reaction was always like, well, okay, if you're going to do that, then you've got to figure out how to be the best at it uh, and how to, be, how to be someone that stands out. Um, so they really let me just venture down my own path. They never forced me to figure out a school or forced me to, you know, hey, you've got to do this first and then focus on your art. It was always, well, I mean, if you're going to do that, you've got to do a full force and, you know, you've got to sort of figure out that that's do or die. Uh, and that's what I was, you know, pre-instilled with very early on, which was do or die. So uh, that, that really played heavily into my start as a filmmaker because, you know, for me, it was, it was definitely difficult. That's awesome. That's a good, that's a great story. When did you make yeah. your first short film? How old were you? I was probably about nine. Uh, me and my brothers, we were uh, doing, because at the time, it was, we didn't have an editing software of a computer. We, we couldn't afford a computer. So how I learned to edit was literally pressing record and they would say something I'd stop the recording and then I'd have a move and I'd press record again and then I'd stop the recording <laughs> you know and so I was editing it as I was shooting it yeah. and believe it or not I think that was a huge help efficiency. to my brain yeah and efficiency and figuring out oh I don't need this to get to here I can just be here <laughs> you know, and, and it was a real sort of really weird sort of early film school for me, just using that pause and press button to learn how to edit and to really know how to edit before I get to a machine to edit. So crazy enough that I do that still to this day when I'm shooting movies and I'm shooting movies in 18 or 20 days, I'm editing the movie as I go. I'm, I'm shooting it as if I'm editing it. Uh, so, you know, yeah, that, that was about nine years old with my brother and we were doing this weird little action thing where he was jumping out the window, climbing up to the roof, jumping off the roof. And then at that time I was trying to figure out matrix moves. And so he was like doing like weird matrix stuff around. So uh, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It's cool. All right, James, you had the next question. Well, yeah. So you, you graduate and you immediately move to Hollywood, correct? Yeah. That, so, so uh, once you arrive, how do you, I, I know you make, um, your first film that you wrote, you edited all of that stuff, but how did you survive until that was done? What was, I mean, I, I, I just, as I read that, I was like that, I don't have that intestinal fortitude. Yeah. What <laughs> were you doing for actual money? Uh, I, I didn't have any money. Uh, I, okay, so, so to start with, the thing was is that I made the movie in Florida, right? Huh? So I was in film school and I gathered a bunch of kids together. At full sale. So at full sale. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I went to Full Sail University, right? <clears throat> and during my time at Full Sail, I was sort of known as the kid that like was very active in shooting. I was shooting stuff constantly. Everyone knew that if I was a weekend, this Full Sail is a cool school. It's like it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, that you could have a class, but the school's open that much. And the school's equipment is bananas. I mean, the stuff they have, I had never seen before, but I went there because of the equipment. I wanted to learn every piece of gear I could possibly get my right. hands on. I figured if I understood what the grips and electrics were doing and how long it took them to take their cables or, or do, if I knew all of that lingo, I felt like as me as a, a director, I would be able to understand how my set moves and, and goes. So I gathered a bunch of kids up at, at school and said, hey, look, I'm gonna make a movie. And I had my friend Will Plevenger and Mark Bowman and, and Will said, you know, I think we could have a window to make something if we go and talk to the administration. They usually have a July 4th break where everyone's off. And uh, my friend Mark Dahlman, who uh, had just got into, it was like a small amount, like $5,000. And he was like, I, you know, I'm willing to help put up some money. And I had like $2,000. I'm willing to put up the only money I have. How do we, how can we put whatever the $7,000 in this pot 
and how can we make a movie? And we went to the school and I asked them, hey, can I use your equipment? And they said, sure. They never asked. They literally said they've never had anybody ask to really? use the equipment. Yeah, they, they said they've never had anybody ask. And so I found that and I'm, you know, a little blown away. Uh, and they're like, what do you mean you want to use it? I was like, well, I, I just want to take one of your trucks <laughs> and I want to fill it up with everything you have. And they had, you know, at the time, I can't remember the camera they had. I think it was the HBX at the time. Uh, and so I said, I want to use that HBX. I know you had some Panasonic Prime lenses that fit on the HBX. Uh, and I want to use those. And I'm going to use all your equipment. Is there any questions? Do you have a problem? And they're like, I don't think so. I mean, nobody's asked, so why not? And then I went around in, in the school. They also do a uh, set building class. So there's sound stages and they build sets. And I went around and noticed that two or three of the sets, one was a morgue. And one was an old like barn. Uh, and I said, okay, so I'm gonna write my script around these two things also. And cause I had no script yet. And so, <laughs> and so I said, all right, I know of there's, course this, you there's this, yeah. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that in my script, I need to be at a morgue and I need to be in a barn of some kind so I can use you these fit sound in perfectly stages. in Hollywood. Yeah. Sir. <laughs> no script. We've got a green light though. Shoot the fucker. Right. So that was, that was it. And then, and then Will said, yeah, well we have this window. The school gave us the window. It was a July 4th weekend. And they were like, you have nine days that you can use all the equipment that you want and any kind of health personnel that you would like. You have the nine days. And, and I said, great. And, and I looked at my calendar. I was like, but that's in, two fucking weeks <laughs> and they were like yeah two weeks so i literally had to write a script i had to cast the movie i had to crew up the movie and i had to find actors for the movie in a two-week span i wrote the script in a single night and then we went we just went on the journey right and then we went and we spent nine days making the movie it was insane um you know one of the greater portions of the movie was after the first night the first night we uh, shot downtown orlando and and a crazy story for downtown Orlando is they allowed me to shoot. They allowed me to take over two blocks of the city for a hundred dollars. Yep. What year and was so, this? This was uh, 2005. Okay. I just wanted to make sure right about the time. Okay. Yeah. So 2005, which isn't, you know, I mean, at that point that people know a movie, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's only like it's 15 crazy. years ago. Steve. It's not that crazy. Yeah. And so they allowed me, you know, crazy enough. I went to the film commission. They're like, we have two streets that's not being used right now. You can use these two blocks. And I was like, okay, it's our first night of shooting. I was hoping maybe 30 people would show up for zombies. We had 600 people show up that wanted to be zombies. And this is all just from a, a Splash face, uh, MySpace page. Or I, yeah, it was MySpace page Splash that I put out and people showed up. And I only had one effects artist. And the guy's looking at me like, how do I, how do I make all these people zombies? Like, what do we do? And I was like, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do the first two rows and you're going to give them the best makeup you can do. And then everybody behind that, you're just going to pull them up and we're just going to splash them. And that's just what we're going to do. And that's what we did. And, uh, and so the first night of shooting, we shot all downtown Orlando. And after that night, I took it home. I didn't sleep. I edited a trailer of that first night and I brought it back to the crew the next day. I was like, look, this is what we're making. This is what I want to do. <clears throat> and it really, invigor you know, everybody just got really pumped, yeah. but I think they got more pumped that, somehow my buddy will clevenger had gave it to harry knowles and harry knowles put it up on april news yep. and then all of a sudden the second day of shooting we got a call from new line cinema and new line i don't even know how they got my phone number i'll be completely honest with you i still don't know new line calls and says hey this trailer's really kick ass when you're done we want to see the movie now that like i played that guy because it was a message i played that message for everybody on the crew 
and they didn't, they didn't care what pizza we were eating that day. What we were, they were just like, let's go make a movie. This is going to be, you know. So it was a really cool synergy of emotions and feelings and everybody making this movie in nine days that we thought was going to be this gigantic Star Wars hit, you know. And, and you know, it's funny that it didn't turn out that way, but it still turned out to be a really cool project. Um, and then when I was done, to your point, we'll, we'll get there now. I was like, no, I was no. like okay, now I got to get out to L.A., right? Now I got I got... I got, I had about $150 left after making this movie. And I was like, I, I got to get out to LA. And I called my dad and I said, okay, dad, I'm going to drive this movie out to LA because I, I have my laptop. I'm, I can edit the movie, but I don't, I need someone to sound design it. I need someone to score it. I need someone to do all of the basic everything for it. And I felt like I needed to do that in LA. And so uh, he was like, all right, good for you. Go with God. We'll see you later. And I was like, no, I need some, I need help. I can't get out there. And to my dad's credit, he was like, this is one of those moments, Stephen, where if you're going to do it, you got to do it. And so without help, you know, I, I said, okay, dad, I'm out. And I did. And so, uh, you know, I think at the moment I was mad, and, but I think I can look back and go, okay, it was my dad really testing me to see, I think if I had gotten out there and said, I need help, they would have swooped in. Uh, but I think for him, it was a moment of it, if this is a pen, you're going to make it, you really have to push yourself to make it in a business that's impossible. Um, so, so yeah, that's where I did. I, I drove out to LA with $150. I, uh, slept in my car, uh, for the first six months and basically was spending on, I would do a, an editing job here and there, uh, that was quick. I jumped on a few really terrible movie sets and just PA, um, a few times, uh, it was a movie's called the asylum. Uh, and uh, I worked on their movies just in the BG, uh, just doing grip work or electric while I was editing my movie, while I was getting people to sound design my movie. Insanely enough, it was Craigslist ads. I came across some guys. One guy, who, uh, my guy Jamie, who scored and did sound design for Halo, was taking a break, and he was like, hey, I could do your movie, and he did my movie for free. Uh, you know, and so it was a whole insane process of getting the movie done and I think we were halfway through with the movie when I showed it to New Line Cinema for the first time. And uh, New Line Cinema told me it was a piece of shit and that, sorry, we don't want it. <laughs> so I think that's one of those- so You got those all the way out there. All the way out there, right? And I think that's sort of like an interesting thing, right? And for people to understand is that it, everybody thought this was gonna be, and I included, had it in my brain, that this was my chance, this was my shot, I'm gonna make it from this. And I, and, and I mistakenly showed them a rough cut anyway, it was a mistake, but I didn't know. I, I had no idea how this worked. I just knew they yeah. wanted to watch the movie and they were pushing really hard to watch the movie. And so I showed it to them and they all looked at me like, what is this? <laughs> so they just didn't get it, understandably so. Um, and so I, and that was about a year after being out here. So I was devastated that I was like, what do I do with this now? It's not done. Uh, I, I don't know what to do. So I had to really push myself to continue because I've been living in my car now for a year and, uh, you know, showering and everything is very not fun and, and trying to find places to, to do all of that is not fun, especially in LA, uh, where it can be pretty scary. Uh, and then, you know, luckily I met a few friends in that year that were like, Hey, we have an apartment. You can sleep on the couch. So it, it moved from my car to a couch uh, while I was still editing this movie. So totally took me about two years to finish editing and get it completely where I wanted it um, before I was able to figure out, try to figure out what was I gonna do next with it. Um, and in this time, I sort of had the idea that I would go to bars that were the closest to studios 
So if I was going to, if there was a Paramount, I knew where Paramount was, I was going to go to a bar close to Paramount. If there was the Sony lot, I was going to the closest bar to the Sony lot. And my thought process was that people making movies had to filter out into these bars. And that's where I was going to meet someone that was going to say, hey, your movie looks cool. I want to buy it. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. But what did ultimately occur from that is the security guard from Sony was drinking with me one night and just kind of we're just chit-chatting and I said look I know you work over at Sony I know you work on a lot is there a way I have a trailer for the movie is there a way that I can you can take this trailer and just put it on people's desks for me and he was like no I'm not going to do that <laughs> and I was like okay he was like but I will give you an hour to and I'll point you in the direction of buildings I think you should go. I was talking to like, hey, look, I'd like to hit up. Yeah. Like, I, I knew Rainy was there. I knew a, a bunch of people were there. Yep. And uh, so he did. He gave me an hour. He kind of X'd off a few places for me and said, here's where you should roll. And he's like, and then after this hour, I'm going to come find you. And then I'm going to throw you out. And I was like, okay. So I took the trailer that's on a disc. And I just started passing it out to everyone I could, you know, every desk I could see that he kind of gave me an X for. Um, then about, I don't know, three hours after I did that, I was chilling and <laughs> I got a call from J.R. Young at Ghost House. Mm-hmm. And J.R. was like, have you, do you have the full movie for this? Like, what is this? And I was like, <clears throat> well, you know, I pretty much live in my car. So yes, the whole movie is right here and I'm still down the block. <clears throat> and he's like, you know, we'd really love to watch the movie. And I was like, who? And he was like, me and Sam Raimi, we'd love to watch the movie. Oh, my God. Was, so we started like, with Evil Dead 2. It started and with Evil Dead 2. I'm sorry. I'm just and a huge. went to this. Yeah, sorry. And so I, I, in my brain, I'm trying to process what he just said. Uh, and I'm thinking, you want to watch it with Sam Raimi, like, on my computer? <laughs> and they're like, bring your computer, and we're going to hook it up, and we're going to watch it on the, the Sony lot screen in the theater. And I was like, you're going to watch my movie in the theater with Sam Raimi. <laughs> it's like, that's what we're going to do. And <clears throat> it was an amazing experience. They watched the movie. Uh, Sam tried to figure out how could ghost house buy the movie on the spot. Uh, Cause ghost house wasn't buying yet. They were in the process of finishing their deal before uh-huh. they did the ghost house labor. Mm-hmm. And so Sam was trying to figure out how could my movie be the title movie for ghost house uh and <clears throat> ultimately they just couldn't figure it out because they weren't ready to do that the legal, it was a bunch of legal things so sam was like look what i'm gonna do is i'm just gonna start talking to a few people to see how we can get this done for you uh and ultimately uh he gave it to a bunch of people it got to uta who eventually signed me as my agent my manager adam goldworm all these this sort of thing happened because i sh- because sam watched it and he kind of passed it around uh and then ultimately it also got in the hands of one of my good friends brad miska at bloodydisgusting.com uh-huh. and Brad is a huge advocate for indie filmmaking and he he was a guy that was like look I think everyone should see this movie don't sell it to anybody everyone should watch this thing um and so I was like sure they so he threw it up in a festival and it played at the LA Film Festival and then at the LA Film Festival it got into some crazy bidding war with Lionsgate and Fox uh-huh. Atomic at the time and Dimension uh and so it it was a crazy process to say that it went from 2005, I made the movie and I sold the movie in 2008 and we ended up selling it to Dimension. And so, uh, you know, it's funny when you read my bio, it's like, oh, wow, he made a movie in Florida. He went out and he sold it and he, now he's making movies. I think the crazier process is that the, the time it took, the yeah. three years to sell this thing 
right? That's like impossible to do and somehow you do it. And then it's like, well, where do you go from there? So, it, you know, I think that's what a lot of people misunderstand about even my story. They realize, wait, I don't realize that you were in your car or that, you know, you didn't have them. Wait, you know, it took you that long to sell it? That's how long it takes? And I was like, you know, sometimes it does. I mean, I don't know if my journey is much different than your journey. I don't know. But my journey has always been a very long journey. Well, ours, and we understand. We just had, I don't know if you know him, Todd Farmer. He wrote Jason. Yeah. Damon. Okay. Well, Todd. Todd was on the show the other day and I wanted him to tell the story about not only is it the first part of the journey that people don't understand and there's no such thing as an overnight success. Yeah. You just happen to know about them. And the other part right. is, is you're always hustling for the next yep. gig. And then talking about him living in his car just a few years ago for a while after he yep. just wrote, just had a Nicolas Cage movie out in theaters. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. how the business is that way. It's really tough. And you're always hustling for the next gig. And I find it fat. So real quick, I have two follow-ups to that. Unless, James, do you have something? No, go ahead. Go ahead. My first follow-up is, and I don't want to know, do you wish it went to someone other than the Weinsteins? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think ultimately. Not because of, not because no, not, of the. Not yeah, because of that. It, just I, because I of them being assholes you, in general. Ultimately, yeah, ultimately I got kind of sucked into the Hollywood thing and not understanding what was happening when it even sold. I didn't even know who it sold to. I wasn't asked. I, it was sort of like a bunch of agents came in and took it and, and they did their thing. And the next thing I know, it, it sold to the wine scenes. I was always under the impression we were still going back to Sam and we were still going to do uh, another, even Fox Atomic had come in and I know they died eventually, but <clears throat> they had come in and with my favorite deal, which was they were wanting to just, buy the rights to it and then they were going to say rodriguez it and let's remake it let's make your version your big version of it so people and that's what understand I el mariachi de desperado that's right el mariachi de desperado that's what fox atomic wanted right. to do they were they were keen on we like it but we we would prefer you make the polished version which is what i set out to do even when i got there my hope was that that this was not i that this was a very student film to me i i made it with, with friends and night i thought this was something people would like and go, we want you to do the big version of this. I never really thought it would sell as like its own movie. Uh, so when Fox Tomic brought that up, that was my ultimate, like, this is what, this is what I want to do. The circumstances, <clears throat> again, like Hollywood's just a funny business. It's just the, ultimately there was a huge misunderstanding with one of my executive producers and Fox Atomic and they backed out because the guy, you know, and this is a, I think this is a crazy story, which is, and how social media was still early, but plays into a big thing. Please. So if people don't, if people don't know, when, when a studio comes to you and offers you a movie, they sit with you and your lawyer in a room, right? And they, they say, here, this is, this is the terms, this is what we want to do. And 99% of the time, the lawyer says, hey, we're going to, we're going to pass this. We're going to, because they, they want to, they want to get some kind of like better deal or something. And the lawyer's like, hey, we're going to, we're going to take a minute. We don't think this is right for us because we have five other things and we're going to, we're going to pause. And, and everyone knows they're going to come back with another offer, I guess, except my executive producer at the time who didn't understand that's what they did page and posted, you know, fuck Fox. And for no apparent reason did he do this. And, you know, we'll leave that name nameless. It was the guy that did. And, and, uh, and I also don't think he understood that Fox had a stake in MySpace at the time. Yeah. And so they're kind of monitoring that all the time, right? I mean, and you would think they're monitoring my page and his page probably, which they were. And I would say within 30 minutes of that post going up, but that I had no idea was up. 
uh, Fox Atomic calls and says, hey, man, we're just done. We're not really interested in working with, you know, this kind of behavior. Now, what kind of, what's wrong? What kind of behavior? And then this guy posts, I was like, whoa, but that's not me, <laughs> that's, you know? And I think that's another really crazy lesson about this business is that you are who you are associated with Absolutely. also. Yep. And so it doesn't matter, you know, what you do personally is if your associates or the people you work with are, are not living up to what your standards are, is it to drag you down? And so that, that's how I lost the Fox Atomic deal. Uh, and ultimately really just had to take the dimension thing. Uh, and not really had to, but it was one of those things where it was like the ultimate thing I really wanted to do was pushed. Um, just because, you know, there was a statement that's made and how important social media is and, and what it can do to anybody, even back in 2008, <laughs> it was, you know, now it's a monster, but in 2008, it was still very similar. So it, you know, it was a quick learning lesson for me on, on not, not just who I surround myself with, but what my presence is online. Uh, what people's presence should be online uh, and, and how I wanted to present myself to everyone else. Ultimately, you know, it, it blew over and, you know, and the guys at Fox that I, at the time are now working at like XYZ and stuff like that are good friends of mine. Um, but at the time it was a blow because I was like, did I just destroy my entire existence yeah. out here? <laughs> you know, and, and, it, and ultimately not, but it was, you know, it's one of those things. It's like you just said, it's a, it's a roller coaster of things that can happen uh, when you're, when you're out here. Yeah, because Hollywood is a business of relationships, and, yeah. and it's all relationship-wise. It's getting guests on our show is a business of relationships, right? Sure. It's just me sure. one certain and introducing the next. So now that you went, you sold your movie, you're probably excited getting a little bit of money. Yep. Uh, major day, probably major parents' day. <clears throat> major parents' day, for sure. Parents are like, well, we actually, to them when they see dimension bought it at the time, I mean, that logo is in front of every horror movie on the planet at that time. Yeah. Right. Still. Right. I mean, you're every horror movie, every one dimension logo. Right. And so for my parents to understand that and say, we know that logo and that logo is in front of our son's movie. was a huge deal for them. Uh, it definitely a huge day for them to say, Oh, you don't have to be in your car. anymore." Uh, and so, you know, it was very nice. And it was also nice for me because, you know, at the time when we made the movie, we didn't pay anybody. So I was able to go back and, and pay everyone that worked on the movie. Oh, that's which was great. Of, which was fun. Uh, it was really cool to be able to do. Good for you. Good for you being a stand-up guy about that. That's great. Oh, that was nice. So They all deserved it. Now, you get an agent, you have an attorney, you're a director. You're a director <laughs> by God. Right. Here's the problem. You need to make picture two. Two, yep. And you now we probably two. enter development hell. <laughs> yep, it was meeting bad. hell. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad. I, well, at first it was awesome, right? Like you're meeting at Fox, you're meeting at yeah. Paramount, you're meeting at every movie under the sun. Like, you know, they threw me Prom Night, they threw me Lost Boys, they threw me, you know, Children of the Corn. And there, you know, it was like, at, at first I was really sort of like that, you know, it really is that story of your movie had sold, Sam Raimi loves it, and Sam's talking about it, right? And so people are, and even Sam's has me coming in for all, even at that point we were talking Evil Dead. But at that point we were talking serious? Evil Dead. Yeah, but it was different because when I was there, Sam wanted, and everybody wanted to make Evil Dead, but it was Evil Dead versus, uh, it was like uh, Friday, Jason versus Evil Dead. And so it was like a Friday the 13th mashup of so Evil I, Dead. I heard about, so it would have been Friday, would it, was, was it the three though? They were wanting to do yes. Friday the 13th, Freddy and <clears throat> yeah. Ash? They were, they were New Line everybody. was really about that for a half a second, right? They were all about it. for, a, And my friend Jeff Katz was running New Line at the time. Or he's at Fox, but then he went to New Line. 
And so Jeff was a huge fan of mine. And so Jeff was like, let's get Steven. Sam loves Steven. Let's, you know, there's a script sort of, there's an idea. And so, you know, they had me in there looking at that and, and it didn't work, but, but that, those, that moment in time where I felt like, oh, wow, this it was a, probably six months where I was just meeting on everything in the room on everything. And, you know, I had the options of turning down a few things that probably, who knows if they would have mattered, you know, like I turned down prom night, you know, and things like that. It's like, you know, who knows if that would have mattered and I would have done. Um, you know, at the time you're looking at those things going, I got to make number two and number two has got to be awesome. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it also just became, and I got attached to a few comic book things and at the time that even was not as cool as it is now, but it was cool. And it just development and everything would take time. And I didn't understand that process. And so I was sort of focusing on these one or two things and they were just taking forever. I mean, it, by the time any of these things I felt like were going, they would drop out or they would die or a studio would die. Fox Atomic died. Paramount Vantage, which I had like three films of Paramount Vantage, died. Um, MGM, who had attached me to Motel Hell, which I was really excited about because I loved the original. And to be able to reboot it was going to be fun. And they, they died at that time. They, you know, just died. So it literally was a three-year process. Uh, this is 2008, 19, yeah, two and a half, three-year process of me, again, like trying to figure out what I'm going to make and development. And it was a nightmare. Uh, and so again, now I'm running out of money. <laughs> and, yeah, and, you know, and, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, now I'm going to have to go back to my car because I can't afford this small 12 box, 12 by 12 box I'm in uh, I'm too much longer. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's ultimately a really crazy story of getting really cool success and then just not getting to make number two that you wanted to make for three years. And so by the time you feel like you're, you know, you're going to get something, nobody cares anymore. We don't, Steven didn't do it in those first amount of time. He must be a fluke. It must not be, you know, he just must not be the guy, right? Uh, because all word of mouth. It is. <clears throat> it's all word of mouth. And by the time three years is around, those guys that were hyped on me have moved on either other jobs or they're not at the same position they were. Uh, and even the meetings that I was in, the guys have moved on or those movies have moved on. And so I kind of, it became like a six months of just stall, just nothing, right? Agents weren't calling me back. My manager's trying to figure stuff out, but he's off to doing, he's figuring his stone thing out. So it was really a scary six months for me of, you know, three years of nothing. Now six months I'm sitting here, really nothing, like dead silence, you know? Uh, and so it, it was a very taxing moment in life uh, because I, I was really scared and didn't really understand why this was happening or what I was going to do. And uh, so, you know, it, I, I really had to just jump on anything at that point. And it was, it was a sci-fi movie. You know, and at the time I didn't know it was sci-fi, it was After Dark. Mm -hmm. And After Dark, I thought was a cool little thing I could go in and make a fun movie called Screaming the Banshee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know, three days into making the movie, they're like, oh, this is going to be a sci-fi movie. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? This is going to be a sci-fi movie. I, I created a creature that's going to rip heads off and it's going to, you know, this thing's going to, you know, and they're like, now you need to rethink the creature. It's got to be friendlier TV thing. And it can't, sci-fi at the time is like, you can't have too much blood. It's not like now where they, they show everything. But like, so I was like, I don't, I'm making a sci-fi movie now. Oh man, this sucks. And so like, I was in this, just making this Scream of the Banshee movie that was just called Banshee and then it came screen. You know, it, it was just a culmination of this movie is going to be not fun for me. Uh, and, and I could feel it in my bones while I'm making the movie that I just was not happy. I wasn't excited that I wasn't making a theatrical film. Uh, and, and so it, it was a really 
depressing, you know, 2012, I think, 2011, of just, you know, feeling like I had totally shit the bed and, you know, wasn't becoming what I wanted to become. So, you know, it's, again, it's just like this rise and sort of really quick fall and then having to pick up the pieces after Banshee and trying to figure out, okay, I can't do this anymore. I got to figure out, I want to make real movies and cool movies, but no one's going to give me the money anymore. Um, you know, I, I can't go to the studio. They don't care anymore. So I got to, I got to find a way to make cool indie movies um, with people that I want to make movies with. And that, that was sort of my thought process at that point. Real quick, I want to go back. I'm curious because Motel Hell is such a strange little creature. It's just yeah. a strange little movie and mm -hmm. makes no good sense, but it is a lot of fun. And it, I, I'm curious about your take on it and why that was the one that really, after all this time, still stands out in your head of like, that's the one, that's the one. Yeah, it, it, I think because, you know, number one, like at the time, no, I had original Motel Hell, you know, it's a guy and and, it, and he's cultivating his garden of heads, right? And like, and I, I had saw it as a much different version. I saw it as a female version of a killer. And at the time, no one was going that route and no one even thought about that route. And I had designed with a few of my friends that were artists a, a sketch of what I felt like she would look like and what uh -huh. she would be. Uh, and I think that's what got the studios excited. It also got me excited, what got MGM excited was that, wow, a female villain uh, and a brutal female villain. Mm -hmm. uh, and I bit more intense than comedy. Um, and so I think that's what also drew me to it is I liked the comedy of it, but even for me and, and, the, and when I watch Evil Dead 2, I know it's funny, but I don't ever think Sam set out to make it funny. I think Sam set out to make a really fun movie that people interpreted as crazy and zany. And so I, I sort of took that as that's how I would have made Motel Hell. I would set out to make it very straight and, and scary, but with these elements that are insane that I'm sure people would have laughed at, right? Uh, and I think that's what was sort of exciting for me. It also involved a guy that I love, Craig Perry. And uh -huh. Craig Perry did Final Destination. Like the guy did American Pie. And so I, I was really keen to work with Craig uh, because he, I mean, he gets these movies. And when you talk to this guy, he really speaks the language. I mean, the, he was a Fangoria nerd. I mean, we, we talked about owning you know, the entire collection at one point, you know, so it was really more about making the movie with people that I really loved, that I was excited about that project. So when it didn't happen, it was a, it was a real big bummer. Yeah, I have every fango. I don't know that that's going to get me any free drinks. But, uh, <laughs> definitely not the reason why it, the, the it, missus it married me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think my wife's like, those can't be in the house. And I'm like, All right, fine. Yeah, so, you know, now but I yeah, three-year-old married right over here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry, James, go ahead. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned about people that you love to work with, and you work with some people that I love, so I have to ask this question. You, you have directed the most recent collaboration between – that featured both Nicolas Cage and John Cusack, Arsenal. Right. Uh, and, and I just wanted to ask, because I, I'm a huge Nick Cage fan. Yeah. Uh, and John Cusack seems to have a different personality, which leads to my question of, <laughs> as a director, how do those personalities work on set? And does it change how you approach different, yeah. like, does the casting change how you approach a project? No, you know, for me, no, um, because I'm just really, I don't know, I'm just really good at, at uh, understanding them on a different level than just actors, even when I connect with them. For instance, so Cusack, when I met Cusack for the first time, I, I know John Cusack from movies, clearly, we all do, we, we know, but who John is in those movies is John Cusack, right? Like in, in you know, all the 80s movies, that's John, right? Like to a uh -huh. T, like 
like he's always in all black he's just that guy he's a rock you know he's a rocker guy mm -hmm. and so my instinct was that when i meet john for the first time in person i was going to wear all black uh and i did that mentally on purpose and it paid off like i walk in the room john and i sit down with qsat qsat looks at me he's in all black i'm in all black and he just goes dude <laughs> and then and it was that initial connection that's not filmmaking that's yeah. not business that's on a personal level of okay this guy gets me uh so i don't need to be any kind of alpha male on set they feel like they because there is there is actors that feel they need to be the, the alpha on the set and you oh, have to deal talk with about that Bruce i'm sure we'll get we'll get there yeah we'll get there <laughs> we gotta and talk like, about Bruce. and you and you have to understand how to deal with them but with guys like cusack and cage is the same way when i met with cage he flew me down to vegas and i know cage is a big tattoo guy so i, I knew immediately when we hung out that there was going to be an initial spark of hey steve let me show you my tats bro you know and like he was showing me his stuff and like so i there's just a personal level that i try to create in meeting them right away before i talk movies before I talk business, before I talk anything, I try to make sure that we have a personal connection in some way, uh, whether it's my kids, uh, they have kids, or it's my, my outlook on you know, music or, or, or something. I try not to talk movies. I really try not to talk anything movies with them uh, beforehand so they understand that as a human, uh, I'm approachable and that I'm you know, someone they can trust uh, because that's the most important thing. So if you can get actors trusting you on set, then their demeanor changes, <clears throat> especially bigger guys like Cage and Cusack having to be there. They, they all of a sudden are talking to each other as if they're talking to me. So there's no, there's no egos involved. All of a sudden, we're all just hanging out, having a good time, talking about, you know, early surf rock or whatever we're talking about, you know, whatever, whatever we're talking about. And so then the movie becomes much more chill. Uh, and, you know, even with Cage, when we would talk about, you know, how crazy can you get? Can we, you know, and he's laughing about it, right? We're having a good time talking about, the, the crazy that is Nick, right? And and he loves to discuss that stuff and talk about, you know, how big can he get? And, and, and he was a fan that I was just like, dude, just be as big as you want. I'll come in and say, let's take it down if we need to, but let's just go balls to the wall and see what happens. And, and, and they appreciate that, but I think they also appreciate my sets being very smooth, um, being very efficient. Uh, I'm not a director that comes in on the day and goes, hmm, you know, I wonder what I'm going to do today. Maybe I'll put the camera over over here to step onto my set as an actor, as a crew member, you're stepping into a machine. It's just already set in motion. Everyone can look at the board that's off to the side and see the storyboards that I've boarded for the entire day. I am a very time guy. I have it timed out. So you can say Steven's going to be at 1230 and 1245. He's in this shot. He's really only trying to do five takes and moving the fuck on. So I'm very like directly impacting all day long as far as my motion. And actors, especially older guys who've been doing this for 30, 40 years, you know, they don't want to sit. They, they don't want to go to their trailer. They don't want to be there all day long. They want to move. They want to get their scenes done. And they want to get out. Not that they don't love the art. They just don't want to sit there because movies take so long. And for them to be in the moment character-wise and then out of the moment and sitting for five hours and coming back to try to get in the moment. My whole process is about keeping them there, keeping them in the moment as much as I possibly can and then saying goodbye. <laughs> Thank you for your time. Loved having you. We'll see you on the next one. That, and that's ultimately how I approach them. And they love it. They, they absolutely love the pace. They love that it kind of filters into the uh, movie uh, because I sort of have ADD on set. I'm bouncing around. I'm not in some tent somewhere watching it on a monitor. I am 
at the camera. I am usually trying to grab the camera, <laughs> you know, like I'm right there. So as soon as I say cut, it's one step and they're in front of me, right? And I can talk to them. There's never more than that. I'm always right in the mix. And I think that's what they love about me. If it's an action scene, I'm in the water. If it are, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the boat or I'm on the building or I'm hanging off the building with them. Like that's just, I like that sort of energy and uh, you know, if I could be the Tom Cruise of directing, that's what I would do, you know, where I'm just doing it. I'm there, you know, I want to be a part of it. And, and I think that that allows them to feel really comfortable and, and uh, you know, have fun on set. So you've had to deal, I, I'm, and I go down a list of some, you yeah. have some of the greatest character actors in some of your movies of all time. Thank you. We'll get to that in a second, but huge egos. And I don't, I'm not here to disparage Bruce Willis or look for dirt at all, <laughs> but I can imagine that you've worked with him several times. So you obviously yeah. know how to handle that. Yeah. I mean, Bruce is a, Bruce is definitely an entity, right? Like the guy is Bruce Willis. Um, and, and I think I and he knows he's in. Bruce Willis. He, he 100% knows he's Bruce yeah. Willis. There's no, I mean, he knows he's John McClane, right? Yes. Like that's right. a, that's a literal statement. So the guy knows he, and he's in, in, and I think that's sort of something you have to respect, you know, uh -huh. you know, and, and as a geek, you respect it, right? Because you're like, Absolutely. it's fucking Bruce Willis, man, Bruce Willis. And so the first time I went to meet with Bruce Willis, you know, the crazy thing is, is that it actually, my first studio, real studio movie with Lionsgate was my, my first Bruce Willis picture. Mm -hmm. And so the studio at the time didn't know was me. It, was it, uh, was it Marauders? No, was it? It was extraction. Extraction. Sorry. So, so Lionsgate in the studio doesn't really know me that well, right? They just know that I've come highly recommended as a guy that's sort of up and coming again, right? I did that lull, and then I started making these really cool indie films that were getting noticed at Sundance and South by Southwest, and all of a sudden, oh, here comes Creep and Steven again. And uh, so Lionsgate knew, hey, this guy has a way to make movies. We want to try to buy into that, but they didn't really buy into the fact that I needed to talk to actors beforehand. So they weren't giving me. Bruce, they, they didn't give me my uh, meeting with Bruce at first. My first time meeting Bruce was him stepping on set. Oh, the day to shoot. And it's awful. It's awful, right? Because Bruce doesn't know me. I don't know how Bruce acts. I can only know how I've heard. Yes. And, and, that's and not that could good. be totally different than how he acts yeah. with you because different totally. people have different experiences with him. That's 100% right. But in my case, it was not different on the first day. It was very similar to what everybody said, which is that he's tough and that he can be really hard. And so I already had it in my head going in that Bruce was going to be tough. And so my instinct right away was to say no to everything. Anything Bruce asked, I said no to. So it's a pissing contest. Just, it's a pissing contest, right? <laughs> okay, and I, I had it. it in my head that I was just going to be – I had to try to figure out how to be the alpha guy because I knew from everything I understood about Bruce is that if you give him an inch, Bruce will walk all over you and he'll take over, right? And, and, I, and I, I knew that that was probably going to happen because when Bruce got there – he got there about noon from nine to noon. I had shot all of the action. So all Bruce had to do was step in and follow the choreography that I had already shot. Right. Right. But Bruce didn't want to do that. You know, Bruce wanted to do his own choreography and Bruce wanted to, you know, he, the opening of extraction, he's tied up mm -hmm. uh, and he's been tied up for days right. and he wants to have a gun. And I said, Bruce, you've been tied up for days, bro. You don't have a gun. And, and I'm John McClain. I, I get a gun. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's a good argument. <laughs> you are John McClane. I, I get it. But in this movie, you're not, right? And you don't have a gun. So me and Bruce's first hour on set was just head bashing. We bashed 
We bashed, we bashed until Bruce walked off set. Bruce said, I'm done. I'm out. This guy's not giving me anything. I'm done. Right. And so you got to understand, this is my first studio film, my first movie with a big actor. Yeah. Everybody on Bruce Willis days shows up, right? Everyone from the studio is in their tent. Every executive is there. Oh They're all God. breathing on me. Well, what are you going to do? Your, your actor just walked off set. I'm assuming I'm going to get fired. Um, they're like, why aren't you giving him anything? Why aren't you letting him do this? And so I went to Bruce and I went to his trailer and, you know, and, and to Bruce's credit, he, he was like, Hey man, you're embarrassing me out there. Like, you know, like in front of the crew or forever, but you're basically telling me to fuck off. And I was like, look, dude, I was like, I respect you. I respect the movies you've made, but this is my movie and how I see this movie. And I need you to drop into that. I need you to be that for me. And then I will respect you back and let you play. But I need you to understand that if I have a certain way that I need to make the movie, I need to do that or we're going to be here for fucking ever. And I need you to get out. Do you not want to be here for days? And he's like, oh, no, you know, I need to catch a jet and this. And I was like, well, then let me do my job and get you out so you can do that. And he looked at me and he said, okay. And that was it. And we've, we've been buddies ever since. We have, he's a peach to me. We, every movie he, we, he shows up on, professional, he does his job. Like, you know, it is hard to get him into it because, I mean, you know, look, it's like he, he, people say he's phoning it in. It's not that he's phoning it in. It's honestly that Bruce is having a hard time. He, he has a hard time trying to get into these characters that they're just forcing him into because you got to understand, like, I'm not casting Bruce. Yeah. Do that. I, I was in these, this picture deal with Lionsgate. They're basically just paying him to get there and be in that role yep. so they can sell the movie, right? And that's and the ultimate thing. He's, for he's all doing those that. markets across the world that if yeah, they put Bruce Willis on the box, they can sell yeah. it to all those markets and make the money. And I think, back, right? and I think that comes across as phoning it in. I get that, it, but it's really just he's just not connecting with the character. And and I'm trying, and we're both having fun to try to get him there. But he's really just not connecting with that character. And it's just sort of like, all right, see, so, you know, I'm going to try to get this for you, but then I, you know, I got to catch a jet I'm out of here, you know. And and I get that, and I think. You know, for my credit, for me, it was really difficult to be in that environment because I'm trying to make really cool, fun action movies. But I've also just lived through three years of making nothing, right? And so my mindset is, I now have a wife and kids. My mindset is, I got to make these for the studio. I've got to do my sort of like, here, these are for you, hoping that one day they're going to go, okay, let's make one for you and let you do what you really want to do. So I'm I'm really sort of biting the bullet on some of these and trying to make the best movies possible, knowing that I'm not going to have the best acting coming from these guys because they're just, except I will say Cage, Cusack, you know, even Bruce and Marauders, I thought turned up really well. Uh, Malone, you know, Christopher Malone, he's always great. Chris There's Malone guys that really are great. good at Marauders, by yeah. the way. I think he's given Thank it. Thank you. I, he, I, he's I really amazing. Do. And he's, he's given it all. Yeah, you shot that in Cincinnati, which is only about an hour north of Lexington. I love Cincinnati. Where we're Did you really? Did you have a good time? I love, I love Cincinnati. I would go back to make every movie in Cincinnati. I, I thought it was so fun. I loved the sort of sections of the city mm -hmm. that you could go to. Uh, the food was great. I loved to be able to drive across the bridge. I'm in Kentucky, you know, and, and like, you know, there was a lot of really, really great things about Cincinnati that I loved. I thought it was, it was very filmmaker friendly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, those guys like the Maloney's of the world, the Grenier's of the world, the Jonathan Shecks of the world, like those guys came to play, right? And they, they killed it. Even Cage killed it. I think Cusack killed it. They showed up to, to work. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's unfortunate that the movies get a little bit of a rap that these guys are phoning it in. That's not true. It's just that the movies are only given 
12 days to make a movie, you know? So I'm given 12 days to 13 days to make these movies. And I'm trying to figure out how do I do that when you're only giving me Bruce for a day and I got to shoot 30 pages of Bruce in that day. You know, there's just so many factors that an that audience. That explains the ending of Marauders quite a bit though. Yeah, you only for sure. For one day. We have Bruce for one day. So I have to understand, so I, in my brain, I'm thinking I need to move Bruce from up here. I got to get him to a cemetery. I got to get him over here. I got to get him in a car. And you got to think about how does that day work and plan out? Well, you know, we built a cemetery behind the building in Cincinnati. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's, there's all kinds of really weird tricks in Mex the ending Mexico scene is, you know, a cantina in Cincinnati, you know, we shot it at the end of the day. Like, it's just all these factors that I think an audience never knows. You don't want them to know. But it's tough when they're like, well, it feels like the movie is kind of rushed or, well, shit, yeah. I'm trying to shoot a movie in 13 days and I'm just trying to give everyone something they can watch, right? Just all I'm really going for is watchable, cool, and fun. Oh, you I, do I'm, more I'm than that, sir. That. You do more than so, that. You should give yourself more it, credit. You do more than that. I, honestly, and I'm not trying to pick on Marauders, but it's the one that's in my brain a little bit more. And yeah. It has a little bit more of the, of the Nick Cage and John Cusack one, but it's, it's just up here a little bit more of – that I thought Christopher Maloney was giving it all. And I, I'm oh, yeah. glad that you totally agree with me because that's what I thought when I was watching. I was like, he's going, but I am so impressed. I don't think it looks like 13 days. Yes. There's a little bit of a rush at the end. Right. You only shot. You only had 13 shooting days for that. Yep. Yeah, we did. And you know, yeah. it's one of those things. It's crazy that How do you uh, prep 13 days. I don't, I don't even, how many shots are you getting to... in a day? You are Well, my Day. average, my average setup, so you know, you know camera setups, right? Every time the yeah. movie, every time that camera moves, it's a setup, right? So the light my average for audience, there's it's it's yeah, an ordeal. It's a it's an ordeal. Uh, so normal movies, you know, a 20, 30 camera setup day. David Fincher is eight camera setups a day, right? But normal movies is probably twenty. You're you're getting averaging twenty. My average is about ninety to one hundred and twenty <laughs> setups a day. Uh, and so if you don't think my camera crew is moving. You, when you average that out for a 12-hour day, you know, you're, you're moving every five minutes, you know, even quicker than that, you know. Uh, and, and so you're, you're moving constantly. I only shoot two cameras because uh, usually two cameras is also gets in the way and one camera is more efficient. Um, but two cameras is, is max. Uh, so even on all those action set pieces, we're only covering it with two. Um, and that's just all because it's very specific. I already know what shots are going to cut together, how they're going to cut together, the editors love me because when they grab the movie, they're almost just sort of just like whoop, just it putting is. it together. Yeah, there's not a lot left on my cutting It's just tightening up, right? Yeah, it's just tightening up. And it, so um, that's what that's the only way to do it. I mean, the first AD is running around with his head cut off 90% of the time because I'm moving so fast. Um, but, you know, like I said, the, the everyone on set really loves the pace because I'm not moving at an unhealthy speed. I'm just moving at a very you know, specific, uh, studious speed, uh, you know, that's very like understanding how to do it. It's not like I'm running around, like, I don't know, let's go here. Let's go there. It's very boom, boom, boom. And sort of leapfrogging one camera's here while I have another camera setting up here. And then I kind of do that camera and then we leap to the next camera. Um, so it, it's a very, you know, very thought out process. I apologize. I did not look up your DP. Did you have the same? Uh, yeah. So that, but that also helps, right? Like once I, I have this from extraction through now, I've had the same DP and that's because we speak very cinematic language uh, in the sense that I can say, you know, I really like this shot. 
from Man on Fire, that's the shot. And he goes, I got it. I know what shot you're thinking about. I know I can pull it up. Uh, and we also talk lenses. I'm a huge camera lens guy. Uh, you know, from a 75 millimeter, that's like my ultimate lens to 120 millimeter lens. We, I just understand what those lenses do to characters, what they do to the scene. And so does he. So usually the time taken to change is a lot of the cameras being changed over with lenses or mounts, or I understand what those need to be. So everyone already knows by the time we're moving, what camera lenses and blah, blah, blah. Not too technical, but you know, that he's just the guy that is very shorthand with me now where he can go, I know Steven's going to want to be on this lens and I know how he's going to want to move the camera because I'm, I, you know, I'm a creature of habit where I, my, my style sort of keeps evolving. Um, and I kind of keep pulling on those sort of strings. And so he, he understands that. Cool. Sorry. I've been taking it completely over James. No, no, I, I actually was just uh, uh, talking about lenses and talking about that. That Actually, I just had an odd question. You've directed, obviously, uh, action-adventure films and horror. Yep. What's the difference in the way that you approach those? You know, with, with action films, I try to keep some sort of a pace, even on set. Like I said, like we're, we're pushing pretty hard on set. Um, and with horror films, I try to slow it down. Like, for instance, like uh, what I like to sort of, I, I play music on set. Um, and one of the things that I sort of do in an action sequence before there's a big action sequence, I'm playing a lot of metal. Like I'm just metal it up, right? There's metal blaring before an action sequence goes. So as soon as I say action, I cut the music and my actor's like, ah, you know, and, and they go, right? With a horror film, like I'm usually grabbing some kind of a score that I love that's it got a tone that matches the scene. Uh, I differentiate them. I mean, there's a lot of my, even my horror films, I think, are on the cusp of being action films. Uh, and and I think that's just because my style seeps in and I sort of Silent love Night that is a horror film. Action film. Yeah, it, it's sort of because I think my style in general is a kinetic style. So even in horror films, I'm looking for horror films that have a bit of kineticness to them. I'm not really the, you know, I tried Under the Bed, which was sort of this slow creep movie. And I realized quickly with that movie, that's not me as a filmmaker. Uh, me as a filmmaker has a more pace. I'm not the the Annabelle guy, you know. I'm, I'm much more of like, you know, the the guy that's wielding and flying and hacking and uh -huh. and uh, it's got a little bit of a pulse to it. Um, action guy, you know. And so, you know, I think that's what I love about making those early uh, independent films is I was really able to find my voice and and through trial and error. You know, it was like under the bed. It's like okay, I'm not the slow guy. That's not okay. I tried. Uh, aggression scale. Okay, that's more my speed. I got a little bit of an action with a kid that's fucking shit up. You know, that's, right. that's sort of like, okay, I like that thing. And then it was Silent Night where it was like, yeah, this is fun. I can, I can have some, some, some pulse. Um, and I, that's what really pushed me to the action world. And then now where it's like, hey, look, I'm, I'm looking at the action horror genre of where I want to go next. And now that I have a little bit of a freedom and people are like, hey, we want to make movies with you and give you time and more money, and I'm like, oh, this is great. And that's what Line of Duty was. Uh, Line of Duty was a little bit more time, a little bit more money, and with an actor who I knew very early on was into it, it yeah. was his movie. And they, you know, again, movie not perfect, but it's a movie that really allowed me to push a lot of boundaries with how I make movies um, and have some fun with. And, and now, you know, because the movie did well, that, you know, people are like, hey, we wanna, what about horror? Do you wanna come back to that? And, you know, how do you want to approach that? And, and that's sort of where I'm looking at right now. Okay. 
Well, and I know you promised us an hour, and I don't want to hold you up too long. I just have a couple. I mean, yeah, we can keep going if you got a couple more. Oh, I've got – we've got time, so I'll keep you a little while longer because I want to – Yeah. And, and by the way, it's always a good out, too. It's like, I, you know, hey, I don't know when we got there. Well, let's keep going. <laughs> the conversation is fairly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. And we're not too big of assholes. So, yeah, you're great. I'm curious, uh, Stallone and Willis, which one was harder yeah. to direct? Uh, Bruce was harder to direct. I can uh, imagine. Yeah, Bruce was harder. Stallone was a piece of cake. Stallone was, a, was awesome on set, very difficult in post. Um, but awesome on set. Like he had a, a know, lot of ideas of how because he's a filmmaker. You is that yeah. It? You know, I think what I loved about Sly while we were shooting was he respected me as a filmmaker and understood that he is a filmmaker. But he respected that I had a, a vision and he he dived into that and he had fun with it. The problem was I and I kept telling him through the process was that you need to fight for more days. You need to fight for me to get more time. And I don't think he really understood that because it was the first time. He had made a movie in this process with this studio entity that does these kind of things, right? I'm and and when we, yeah. yeah, when we talked very early on, I was like, look, man, I was like, I don't know if you understand this process, but I need you to fight for me to get more time and more money and more days because this is a difficult movie to, they're asking me to make in 16 days. He's like, 16 days? And I was like, 16 days, dude. And I need you to get more time. Ah, you know, okay. And I don't think he really grasp that concept until we got to the edit room and he was like well i really would have loved to have seen a shot over here and i'm like yeah me too but but sly i had an hour in this set with you to do this right and you were there watching it with me we 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 walked through it and i showed you and you watched it back and i specifically asked hey do you want to do anything else and you were fine with moving on so you know i think it was like a lot of push and tug in yeah. the edit room to get not just the cut right but Sly looking right and he, the way he looks and the way he feels on camera he likes a certain way which is fine um but it just wasn't getting there for him because he didn't feel like there was enough angles there was enough shots and and you know I you know it was one of those things where you have to sort of throw your hands up and say look dude I I begged for you to do this a b or c for me to help me out and, and you did it so now this is sort of what we're here with and then and then it was a process of getting you know that escape plan two was a really tough movie because I got, I got kicked out of the edit room uh, and then it, it just got taken over. It was not my movie. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't I, know that. I didn't know that. I wasn't trying to get yeah. it. No, no, it, it's perfectly fine. I, and it's, it's totally, for me, it's like one of those things where, you know, I, it was another learning experience that I had to understand that, like, if I was, if I was going to, going back, I would have said no to a skate plan. I think of a movie to make how you guys want me to make it like it's just too big and and to try to make it how i wanted to make it was even bigger and try to bring a sci-fi element to it and and it just all sort of crumbled because they didn't let me put it together how i wanted to put it together in the edit sly did not understand the robot he didn't understand the sci-fi element of it he didn't want any of that and i was like but that's the movie sly <laughs> I mean, I was about to say, did you read the script or did you just see yeah, his sides? No, he, he just no, showed I up with his sides. He, and yeah, for the most part, the most part, it felt like he just showed up and read what he thought was a prison movie, right? And 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 That's so, but it, what's funny? What's funny when he did show up? You know, I showed him the robot and what it was going to be, and he was like loving it on set. But in the edit, he he hated it. And I was like, but Sly, we still have tons of VFX to do to this robot. We have so much stuff to do. But he cut it all out, so you don't even you don't even know there's really a robot in this movie. And it, I mean, it's barely there. But in the the original, what I shot is this robot is very heavy 
in the movie as far as a guard. He, he, I mean, there's a whole sequence of robots attacking prisoners and throwing them. And like, there's a huge sequences with this robot that he just got rid of that it really makes the movie feel very small uh, and feel like I didn't have any clue about what to do with the set. The problem was it's just the movie, that is the only movie that I can say there are hours of footage that is just sitting on the ground of a completely different cut. The first cut that I showed Sly and Lionsgate and everyone was like, this movie's fucking bananas. Like it was just so out there. as far as sci-fi element goes, as far as weird, as far as the kung fu goes, as far as the action, it was just really off the wall. Um, I was really kind of paying tribute to a lot of 70s sci-fi prison movies, and they just did not get it. They absolutely did not get it. And Slice for sure did not get it. And so when I was sort of ousted and they recut the movie, they let me come back in to sort of talk about visual effects, but at that point I was kind of over it and I was like, you, you just finished the movie, I don't know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a complete sort of disaster in the sense that I felt like a little betrayed. Um, and even more betrayed when Sly came out on Twitter and was like, you know, Escape Plan 2 is, is the worst movie that I had ever been in. And I was like, what? <laughs> so like, Sly, come he, on, bro. Did he remember Rhinestone? Uh, That's what yeah, I was going to say, Rhinestone. I was like, I was like, come on, bro. Like, I email, I'm emailing him. <laughs> I'm like emailing him. Sly, did you really just put, this is the worst produced movie you've ever been in? And he got back to me to his credit. And he was like, but Steven, I said produced. Not you. You, you were great. It was the producing. And I was like, no one is going no, to no. look at it like that. Sly. No. Everyone is going to look at it as Steven didn't do his job and you hate the movie. Which I don't care if you hate the movie. But, bro, do you have to go out on a social media platform and blast it? like that when you could just say part three is coming out we're excited about it you know it just felt brutal and and, he, and i told him that to his face it felt brutal yeah. and like i you know i didn't like it uh and i felt like you you could have made it clear by saying this wasn't a directorial thing it was just i felt like it was misproduced and the guy didn't have enough time to make what we were all thinking yeah um, but you know at the end of the day like that's the way it is and like you know, I, I still shoot him emails every now and then giving him shit. And, uh, you know, we we can laugh about it, but I don't laugh about it. <laughs> so, well, but it's one of those things. No, I saw the last uh, Rambo film. That is clearly not the worst uh, Stallone movie. Yeah, I mean. The last Rambo is, movie is pretty bad. Sorry. It's pretty, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough to watch. And that's what I think, too, is like that, you know, I love, I love Sly's energy and I love the, what he loves to do on set. I just think when it comes to he's a little out of touch with the movies he's making. I just don't, sometimes he feels like he thinks he's making something that's just not the case. I mean, you know, he had, he had issues with Creed, you know what I mean? And it's like, dude, that movie's great. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like that there's, there's, that movie's awesome. You know, let them do their thing with that movie, dude. Uh, And so, you know, but that's just the way it is. Again, man, like I've just gone through so many different variations of uh, processes and, and variations of issues uh, variations of success, or variations of failure. Uh, I kind of relish with the failures because I feel like it sort of helps me become not just a better filmmaker, but just a tougher sort of individual and, and sort of look at those things like, well, okay, that didn't work. Um, I got to figure out what, what does work. And that's sort of what I went into line of duty doing, which was, okay, it didn't, this didn't work in, you know, trying to be something I'm not, which is really weird and, and out there. It's not me. I'm a popcorn guy. 
I make popcorn movies. I love Nothing those kind of movies. Stick to Nothing that, whether it's in the horror genre, yeah, or or in the action genre. I need to stick to what I'm really good at, um, and that's what I took in the line of duty. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of where I've kind of come to grips with as a filmmaker in the space that I'm at. And and you know, it does a little bit of that. Like, you know, I'm a little. There was time in, you know, two years ago that was a little struggling for me of like, man, I'm not making Star Wars. I wanted to make Star Wars. I'm not making Marvel movies. I wanted to make Marvel movies. And then realizing that the space I'm in is actually a really fun space to make movies. Uh, and especially now where it's, it's more of like a world where it's 25 to 30 days instead of 15 days. So it's really a fun space of being able to experiment. Right. I don't really have a studio telling me a, B, or C, like, I'm just sort of out there. Star Wars. Yeah, never, right? And so, like, for me, this is, like, I had to come to grips with, you know, the type of filmmaker that, you know, you, you tell yourself that you wanted to be this different filmmaker, and then all of a sudden you realize, well, wait a minute, I'm getting to make really cool movies, whether or not they work on, on a level every time. They, they're still really fun movies, and I think I had to come to grips with that as a filmmaker and sort of start to hone in on that and, and really challenge myself to become that sort of a you know niche filmmaker that makes these interesting movies at this level and if the bigger movie comes great if not you know i can lean into this forever I, to be honest like i feel like this is sort of a, an area that i think i could have a lot of fun with for a long time no and it's fantastic and you know what you you hit upon and i know none of us are always where we think we should be james and i've had right. this conversation many times uh, we wish we had thousands of viewers but we you know what we <laughs> enjoy doing we enjoy talking to folks like you instead of right. whoever's on TikTok. So right. that being said, you make a living directing movies. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy, right? I mean, it's I have a lot of director I have a lot of director friends who can't say that, right? Who who will tell you that they did at one point and now they aren't uh, and they're struggling to figure out how do they support their family. So I again, that was one of those realizations too is like my kids are able to eat, <laughs> they're able to you know, they're able to, to live a life that is, is very normal. Uh, they're in a, and my family is able to do a lot of things that we love to do. Um, and it's all because I get to make movies. And I think, um, you know, that's for me is very exciting. But, I, you know, and then I also leaned into editing really hard over the past two years, which is something I really wanted to go back to. Um, and, uh, you know, me and my wife started a boutique trailer house where I'm editing movie trailers. Yeah. Um, and that really sort of, came about because the studios uh, like Lionsgate specifically was starting to use, you know, my trailer edits for their, for their movies. And, uh, and they were like, Hey, can you ghost fix this trailer for us? Like the other games and a few other things. Mm -hmm. And so I was ghost fixing them because I was, how I was pitching movies. I would come in um, what, what I call like a reel is I would edit 30 or 40 different movies into one felt like one movie that I was pitching. Like a sizzle reel, right? It was a sizzle reel. Yeah. And I was in the studio. They, they were loving it so much. They weren't hiring me, but they were lover, loving my, my, uh, my sizzle reel so much. And they were like, all of a sudden they were sort of like, Hey, can you do this? And I was like, yeah, I'm actually pretty good at this trailer thing. And so we just sort of made it a side hustle. And I think that goes back to the constantly hustle aspect of filming constantly hustling constantly hustling so much yeah. so that and you and i and james we're all of a certain age rather than five or six years probably uh, that you won't get to enjoy this till right. 20 to 30 years from now when you're talking to someone who's 30 years younger than me going oh my god can you talk about and you're like i did work with nicholas cage i did work <laughs> with Bruce because you're right. in the middle of the hustle right 
Right. Yeah, you really, you're really sort of in this fog of like whatever you're doing right now, it's just like you're hustling as hard as you can. And, and look, that also sort of starts to pay off, especially in a COVID world yeah. where movies shut down, right? But you're going, wait a minute, I'm still making a living because I'm editing trailers every month. I'm editing three or four trailers a month, you know? And so it's, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, they don't want to branch out because they don't want to look like they're making it they're a failure because they didn't stick to the directing or stick to whatever. I, I just look at filmmaking as in general, as a process and filmmaking is a, there's a lot of aspects to filmmaking. And so I really sort of just decided that directing's fun, but if I can edit and I can be constantly pushing my brain uh, creatively, like it just, it, it really keeps me sharp. Um, it keeps me sharp with knowing the equipment also uh, and learning different things. So yeah, the hustle is always real. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, if you, when you really talk to a lot of really great, even the, the really great filmmakers, like, you know, they all hustle. They still are hustling. I mean, they're still hustling. That's just the great. That's like Spielberg says, you got to, you know, you got to get across that, set up the next project while the last bridge is burning. You got to get across and have yeah. it set up so that you still. Yeah, well, that, I, that's where I was lucky too. It's like, I knew escape plan was burning, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I had to, I had to go find people that were willing to make it the next movie with me before Escape Plan 2 came out because I knew that when it came out, it was going to be a do or die for me where it was like, people are going to hate it, number one, if they were. But people might not want to work with me, right? Because the movie looks like it should have it should have looked better. And uh, and so you, you're understanding that as a filmmaker that you got to get out and you got to start to find the next one. I've always been like that in general, though. Even if the movie I think is going to turn out great, I'm already in prep or trying to shoot the next one just because I don't like sitting still. I like to make movies. Um, but you know, with the COVID thing, it was an instant like, okay, I got to figure out how do I keep afloat? How do I keep this going? Uh, because, you know, even when you're making movies, you're still, you know, you're making enough to get you through maybe, a, you know, a year, you know, but you got to, you got to keep trying to figure out how to keep making money. Right. Absolutely. James, you got the next question and then we'll. Uh, yeah. I, actually, I just wanted to ask a question. I think this may be one of those projects that got away, but I remember uh, you said you had some comic book projects at one point lined up. Was one of those Area 52? Yeah, Area 52 was something that I loved. Um, number one, I, I was a big fan of Image Comics because I, I just, I like their sort of the worlds they, they uh, experiment with. Uh, and so Area 52 was a big one for me because I thought it, it incorporated everything I loved about horror with everything I loved about action. Uh, yeah. And it was sort of the Indiana Jones feel to it, you know, it just, but in, in you know, this place that was, forbidden wasteland right and sort of the thing going on and so i developed that for a long time with bender spink and uh and divana ventura pictures was on it at one point uh and uh so they had come on and they still had me on this was even like up till like a few years ago um and we were trying so that movie is like still there it's like a weird movie that no one knows the script never came back right nobody's ever gotten a script right for it so they're still trying to figure that out I think they're also still just sort of waiting. I don't know if they're waiting, but I think they're sort of still hoping that my directorial status keeps growing. Um, and that way it's sort of a movie that they hang on for me as like a boom, here's Steven's Fourier into big studio land, um, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I think that's sort of a process because the next movie that I had sort of lined up is much bigger than Line of Duty. And so I think it's right now things seem like they're sort of stacking up building a little bigger so that feels like it could be one of those uh movies that we spend a lot of time with 
I, I just wanted to ask because I think that's uh, uh, looking at the films that you've done and, and, and uh, liking the films that you've done. I, when I heard that you were at, at one point working on that, I was like, that would be perfect. Cause as you said, yeah. it is, I remember reading it when it came out. I saw the first issue. I grabbed it going, what's this about? And this the fact that it's all over the top and there's all the mythological and there's all the horror. And then of course, the only way things advance is everything has to go wrong. So, yeah. Uh, I hope that does come back because I would love to see your take on that. that yeah, cool. I think I think it has a, a really big possibility, especially because you know the next one that I'm we're we're gearing up for. I have two that's sort of like in the running to go. Whichever one goes next will happen. But the one that I feel like probably will is a a werewolf film, and I think that that sort of would segue into something like an Area 52, where I have to make you know a, a film that's very and it's very different than most werewolf films in the sense that it's just got a lot of action and you're and uh it's sort of i i sort of describe it as the purge meets werewolves uh and so it's really fun it's really cool um and uh yeah so you know i i think it could be something that goes back hopefully oh, oh yeah. weekly uh, by the way i'm ecstatic to oh sorry i just want to i'm say ecstatic to hear the uh, the werewolf thing because i am werewolves to me i i love the wolf man i love all the classic ones and they don't yeah get, they don't get we get vampires and zombies all the time. I want more right. werewolves. So There's thank just you. so few of them that are done right. I mean, for every yeah, Dog Soldiers or American Werewolf, I just love Dog Soldiers. Sorry, just to go yep, for every dog. I mean, it's just for every one of those, there's, yeah, I don't want to Yeah, there's, there's, like, there's the underworld. You know, yeah. you know, but it's like, it's like that. And, and my issue with those movies is not that they're not that they're, they're trying. I think I have an issue with CGI and I have an issue with using CGI too much. I have an issue with that in general in movies where I feel like I love CG, but I would love to see them find a way to marry the two more and better. Yep. So it looks more authentic. Um, and I think that's sort of like where I'm going with this werewolf movie. We've had a lot of conversations with Studio ADI uh, and the guys who are building the wolf, uh -huh. um, is that, that it's a physical being that I can, I can grab, I can touch, I can scare the living shit out of whoever I want to scare out of. And, and then, and then I can use CGI to enhance or to have fun with it, but I definitely don't want to use it. I definitely don't want to use it for the change. And I don't want to use it for uh, when the wolf is attacking. What I'd like to be able to use it for is, is if the wolf's blood needs to splatter a little more like that kind of thing. But ultimately everything in camera is what I'm pushing for in this werewolf film. Uh, and I think everyone's excited about that because, you know, it gives them a chance to figure out how do we, make that movie and that's sort of that's where i'm really good with these kind of films and why it would be good with something like area 52 is like you know i just know how to shoot the monsters i know how to shoot in a way that that gives that feel that they're in frame but there's something covering the frame so you're not really sure what's happening there and and uh you know i you know I, and I'll, really i look to to garth edwards uh his godzilla 2014 godzilla movie yeah. where i thought he did an amazing you know whether you not you like it or not what he did really well with that movie is not show Godzilla. Absolutely. <laughs> and, like, Absolutely. And, and he did such a great job. And when you do see it, it's from building perspectives uh, or people perspectives. Okay. And, it, and Godzilla's sort of back there in the frame, but he's not taking over the frame. And I thought it was brilliant to do that because I think, you know, it allowed me as an audience member to anticipate the big reveal more, right. even though I knew what he sort of looked like. I just, to me, those are the kind of things that I look at and go, and, and say, okay, that's really what I think I would like to be doing if I'm going to be in that horror space. 
Well, he he made the marvelous monsters film as well. So yeah, exactly. Monsters are fantastic. Monsters you know, that's one of those things. That's one of those things too. Is like when I tell I was, I was talking to my own filmmakers all the time, and they're like, "Yeah, but you know, Garth, the monsters, and all of a sudden he's making Godzilla." And I was like, "Yeah, but that's like an anomaly." You know, like like that's those those things are like you would love to be that story, and there's those stories out there. I mean, you know, you know, Alvarez who, from Evil to Do Evil Dead, he did his yep. little short to Do Evil Dead. You know, there's those guys out there, David Samberg who did his short to, to doing all the Shazam and stuff. Yeah, right. But it's like, you know, but those guys are, and they'll tell you, like 90% of the time they'll tell you there's a bigger story behind that where they struggled for a long time before they got to that. And you're, not, you're, you're seeing that blip. But, but there are those guys that, that get that. And I think it's just, it's an anomaly. And you have to really anticipate that's not going to be you. <laughs> and, and really anticipate that it's going to be really difficult. Because if it happens then it's an even better feeling that it happened and you're not yep. anticipating. Because, you know, you, you deal with film students all the time who just assume they're going to be Darren Aronofsky tomorrow, you know, and, and that it's, like, just not the case. It's tough racket. Actually, and back to your about Godzilla, I really like God. I liked both of them. Yeah. I have issues yeah. with both. My issue with the first one is uh, it's miscast in the lead. I agree with you on that, yeah. Completely miscast. Not Brian Cranston. The lead is miscast. The lead, yeah. And then the second one uh, I liked a lot. I just couldn't figure out who 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 wrote that dialogue. <laughs> There's some stuff going on in that movie for sure. But I'm just a huge fan, you know. I'm just a huge fan of everything he does, as far as like, you know, uh, what was his Halloween? You know, all his Halloween stuff that he's oh, done. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, Trick or Treat. Yeah, yeah, like, Trick or Treat. Michael is great. Krampus. That's Krampus is awesome. That's Krampus is so was- good. I was watching it yeah. going, oh, my God, he's such a talented filmmaker. I'm loving everything's going on. And then they would say a sentence, and I go, shit, who, who, who did the polish? <laughs> I, my guess is my guess is a, a lot of those things are probably studio interjections. They're saying they need, to have, they need to have some of this, but I, yeah, who knows? I mean, for me, Michael Doherty is just such a cool he dude. Is. He's so cool. And, and he, he's always been really uh, friendly with me in general. Like, we, I met yeah. Mike very early on in my career. Um, and he was one of the guys that, you know, invited me to his house. We got to hang out. He's very chill. Uh-huh. Um, and he understands filmmaking. He really does. And he understands how to, to really creep out an audience. I, I wish he would stay in horror, to be honest. I think he's, he's great at it. I love trick-or-treating Krampus. And yeah. I like Godzilla King's Mind. It's just, it's weird of he, being, the, because I'm, I'm not a student of film, but I, you know, yeah. like, damn, somebody missed the line reading on it. Anyway. They, they, definitely, they definitely had fun with the movie. And I think that's yeah, what it's I a liked. lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Like, I mean, the trailer for that movie is unreal. Like, to me, the second Godzilla trailer is fucking bananas cool. Even the first one, they're jumping out of the plane and like, oh, you're like what? What is this? Love. You know, it's so cool. Uh, and funny enough, I don't know if you watched the behind the scenes on Godzilla, but he talks about that. That's how he pitched the movie was that sequence of them jumping out of the airplane. Uh, and so it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it is fucking fantastic. Uh, really quick, and I know we got a, I got a couple of questions. I'm looking through a list, and this is one of the things I want to save, save for lit last. I mean, Donald Logue, Kristen Hayden, uh, Hayden Kristen, sorry, John Cusack, Stallone, uh, Gian, Giancarlo Esposito, Ray Wise. You worked with yeah, Ray, Ray Wise, who's amazing. Uh, yep. Which one of them would you, you just have to work with again? Oh man, I probably Giancarlo. Esposito, just because Giancarlo is the man. He's just so cool. I, I don't know, talking with him was like a little euphoric in a sense where he's so smart um, and he understands not just filmmaking, but he just understands the human sort of 
evolution, like what we're going through, where we're trying to be, yeah. uh, what he wants to be, you know, and we were talking, we, we talked about some of his early nineties movies and I, that really sort of speak to me as sort of a, you know, a white guy who, who was brought up in an area of town that was really tough. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we had a lot of really cool conversations about race and, and how diversity works and how we would love to see that working in, in film more. And, um, you know, it was just a lot of really, he just challenged me in a lot of ways that I, he probably doesn't even understand. Uh, and I think he's, a, yeah, he is. And he could just take on a role and become that role in an instant. And, you know, uh, he was just one of those guys that even hanging out with off set, uh, with, with my wife and, and hanging out with him together, he, you know, my wife even was saying he's just such a gentleman. He, he's really one of those guys that's really gravitating. You just want to be in his orbit. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think for me, I would love to be, doing another movie with him where he's there full time. Uh, and we really get to have a lot of fun. Um, you know, he, he's great. And I also would say Malcolm McDowell was a highlight to work with Malcolm, uh, just because we would just talk cute, you know, Kubrick for hours. He just loves talking about it. And we would just talk about, you know, a lot of his earlier stuff and, and things that he's loving, even, even hot to Halloween. We would, you know, how he got Halloween and how he dealt with, you know, you talked about Rob Zombie, like Rob's, you know, like his little, his little buddy, you know, and so it's just yeah. funny to hear him talk. And, um, but yeah, I, I think Giancarlo's the guy that if I could grab a, grab a hold of and, and go make a lot of movies with, it would be John. Okay. This is the next question on this and you don't have to answer it. Who would you not work with again? Oh man. Let's see. I don't ask this for everybody, but I, I think you would. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think me and me and Sly probably won't work together again. Like I'm not really keen on working with Sly again. I know it's not anything against Sly. I just, no. he's just, he's got his own way he makes movies and that process doesn't line up with the way I make movies. Um, I respect the way he makes movies. And I think it's some of, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, he, he's going to make him the way he wants to make him. And I think that's more power to him. I just, for me, like, I don't see myself. It's life's too short to have to be worried about <laughs> the process with him. Uh, I, I wish him the best and make all the cool movies he right. wants to make. But as far as with me, I think, eh, I think me and him probably would, would probably not do it again. All right. So what do you got coming up? To, go ahead, James. Uh, I was going to say, we're not going to see you leading rhinestone too. Yeah, no, we're not doing that. No, <laughs> I was hopeful. I was hopeful. I think Dolly yeah. might get back on board. But okay. Okay. Yeah. That's you know that's directed by the great Bob Clark who gave us a Christmas I know. story. I know, dude, great. And, Bob's uh, great. One of, one of the Black Christmas, which is one of the most underappreciated slasher films. For sure. It just got you know it just gets killed by Halloween. People remember Halloween. Yeah, but I love Black Christmas. I'm all, I'm with you. I love it. I do too. So that being said, is there anything coming out that you can you want to talk about? You can talk about or pitch? You know, I, not yet. You know, I kind of gave you the werewolf thing. Yeah, it was funny sure. enough. There's, there's, a, there's a vampire thing, which is funny that we talked about. There's vampires everywhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, the vampire oh, thing is with is with a good buddy of mine, Craig Perry, who again who, from Motel L. Uh, and I think if we get to make that, it would be. I, I would think it's sort of like the raid with vampires. Um, and oh, so right. we could have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but that's where you know I'm at right now is just trying to push. Uh, one of these things, you know, the rock up the hill uh, with COVID and where we're going to go. It looks like Australia. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I think if those things happen, it'll be in December and, and January. So for the meantime, I'm just, I'm editing a lot of trailers. I, I love editing trailers um, and, you know, hanging out with my kids, which is even more fun. 
Absolutely. We're doing the same thing. Well, Stephen, it has been an absolute blast talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being so just giving with all the information. And I hope our audience realizes just, especially the ones we get a lot of questions about how do I break in? What do I do? You've just given a master's class on just how the business works. And we thank you so much. Yeah, no problem, guys. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Uh, You guys are funny. This is good. Well, we're okay. We're usually a little funnier. We're missing one of the (laughs) ads. All right, I'm going to push it off. That's all good. I I think it's good.